0: Hello, and welcome to a special episode of BZ Listening. I'm your host, BZ Douglas, and this podcast is actually on vacation, but I wanted to help spread the word about a fundraiser for The Footlight, which is a venue in Ridgewood, Queens that is very, very near and dear to my heart. Uh, As are its owner, Laura Reagan and her husband, Tim Shea, good friends of mine, um, so, the Footlight, it actually opened just as I was departing New York for Cleveland, but I got to produce the very first show that ever graced its stage before it officially opened, which was my New York, uh, farewell to New York finale of my variety show, The BZ Douglas Carnival. So, on today's episode, Laura and I discuss the genesis of the Footlight how it has become an artistic incubator and a space that fosters community, and finally the financial troubles she's facing due largely to a landlord that is not honoring his obligations and the systemic problems that the, the city has with regulating uh, building owners like this. Up on the website at bzlistening.com, I will have a gallery of photos and videos of performances at the footlight, a Bushwick Daily article that covers uh, a bit more of the legal issues in detail, and most importantly, a link to donate via withfriends.co. They uh, have all kinds of great perks if you uh, sign up to donate at, at, at several different levels. Everything from discounts on tickets and free drinks to all sorts of cool swag. And if you don't live in New York, you can always uh, gift the the perks to a friend who does live in NYC. And trust me, anyone living there will appreciate all the free they can get. And if they haven't heard of the Footlight yet, they're going to be really happy to discover it. Lastly, uh, I want to make sure that any of my Cleveland musicians who are listening to this uh, will consider reaching out to the footlight the next time you are thinking of passing through New York and playing somewhere in town. Uh, Laura and I chat a bit about uh, how booking should go down towards the end of the podcast, um, but I can't recommend the space enough for artists. And I really hope uh, everyone listening will consider donating. And if you've already donated, please share and let people know this is a, a really great space that's that's operating for all the right reasons. And so I want to thank you so much for listening. The podcast will resume its regular schedule in early September. I've got something extra special planned for the 40th episode, so watch for that. In the meantime, I hope you'll check out the podcast archives for interviews with musicians, activists, politicians, journalists, and uh, a lot more. Uh, All right, that's about it. And now let's get to my interview with Laura Reagan, owner of The Footlight. Mm -hmm. I wanted to help you out in whatever way I can.
1: I really appreciate it.
0: Uh, so I wanted to get into, um, before we get into the problems you're having, I kind of wanted to just do a bit of background and and maybe just structure this as sort of like the good, the bad and the ugly. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, what is the, the origin story for the footlight? This is a, a dream you've had going back a long ways, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in the in the industry, you know, my dad was a small business owner, and, you know, owned a donut shop, and I worked for him. Um, So, you know, I've been working in the service industry since I was 14. Um, When I was a kid, I played in a lot of, uh, I played a lot of music, I did a lot of theater. And, you know, a part of me always wished that there was, I, I always had this like idea in my head of what a a perfect like art space would be like and i always wanted to kind of create that space and so you know after years of being you know i went to berkeley and you know i had a band and i played music for like 10 years in bands and in projects and toured and made records and all this stuff that you know was on my bucket list you know things that i wanted to do and achieve and then after i achieved those things Um, even though like, you know, it wasn't any grand scale or anything. I just felt like satiated at that time with like the music achievements that I had achieved. And I found myself in my thirties and I was like, do I want to start a whole new artistic project or do I want to finally, you know, open this dream venue that I've always wanted to have, (laughs) um, And so I started doing all the research necessary um, to look into starting a business in New York. (laughs) And that's kind of how Footlight started to come to be.
0: And did you settle on... So the Footlight is a bar... And I'm going to do an intro where I kind of talk about what the place is. uh, So there's some context. Uh Um, What reason did you decide to put it in, in Ridgewood just because that's where you were living or did you live in Ridgewood because that was the place you thought was optimal for opening, opening a a music venue?
1: I moved to Ridgewood in 2013. Um, I was definitely at a place in my professional life at that time where I was feeling stagnant and it wasn't until I lived in Ridgewood that I started feeling like opening my own business would be not only a possibility, but just something I would be even interested in. And, you know, and it really, it was the, the neighborhood, you know, moving to this neighborhood, having it be so homey and, you know, becoming quickly becoming part of a community of other small business owners and, you know, and friends that already lived here. You know, it's what made it seem more possible and more desirable to me to like actually lay down roots and stay in New York and and do the venue in New York. Um, I probably would have left uh, New York if I didn't end up in Ridgewood in 2013. I was definitely on this like weird precipice at that point.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of people teeter on that edge for a while when they get to certain places where it's like, what am I getting out of this? Or for this, (laughs) for the struggle involved. I mean, that's where Deb and I landed when we were like, we're, you know, raising kids and getting around New York is tough. We're barely seeing anyone anyways. We have no family to support us. Um, So that was the move for Cleveland was just like, we can't really take full advantage of New York, and it's a real beast to get just to you know navigate it logistically and live here um right did you have any concerns as you were going into Ridgewood? I don't think it's as bad as Bushwick, but everywhere in New York, you know gentrification is is an issue, and being sensitive to how you you know ran your business and and integrated with the community
1: mm. I mean, I think that there gentrification is such a complicated and sticky issue because a lot of burden, you know, just like, you know, societal burden gets put on small businesses as being like champions of gentrification. And while I can see both sides of that argument as being someone who has been pushed out of two neighborhoods at this point in New York because I couldn't afford them. Um, I ended up in Ridgewood because this is where I could afford. Um, it just happened to be such a lovely neighborhood and I'm so lucky that I ended up here. Um, but I think gentrification falls. the, the, the real culprit is, you know, greedy landlords and a city that doesn't regulate them and a city that just paves the way for development and for landlords to have all the control. I actually, believe myself that locally owned small businesses actually help the neighborhood because these are people that live in the neighborhood and have laid down roots there. And they are trying to, you know, keep things in the neighborhood, they're more invested in it, they're going to stand up for the, you know, other neighbors that are getting pushed out, they're going to represent them that rather than, you know, just be a harbinger for hipsters to come through the neighborhood
0: you know i think there's like oh and exactly you're 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 exactly right that i mean gentrification starts with very deliberate plans from land uh land uh landlords and real estate developers and things like that it's more that i think that you know anyone who's young and and new to the neighborhood has to fight that perception to some degree and
1: i and i don't think it's about necessarily Fighting the perception. I think that it's about understanding your contribution. And yes, you know, because you are contributing to it, whether you want to or not, you know, you didn't grow up here, you moved into this neighborhood, you're not part of that neighborhood, you have to make yourself an asset to the community um, and represent the community that you have chosen to make your home. And that means all of the community not just the white people (laughs) let's be blunt you know not just the young professional hipsters that are coming in and buying up the condos and the renovated apartments you know it's about being involved in your community on a level where you go to community board meetings you go to the 104 precinct uh community meetings you you vote in all the small elections, you pay attention to who is representing you in your small district, you know, and, and the greater races in your county, you know, Queens is a really big county, it's one of it's, it's one of the biggest boroughs. And it is, I think it is actually the biggest borough in New York. And, you know, being active and involved in local politics in Queens, is really important for your community and not and not just you, but the people, your neighbors, the people that you live with, you know, and I and that's that, you know, becoming part of the greater community is the only way that you can really fight against the fact that you are a gentrifier. You know, you you are moving into a neighborhood. You are your presence is going to affect these people's lives, whether you like it or not. It's not necessarily like you do have to be, you know, have to exist. You have to live somewhere. You have to be somewhere. But I think that the first step is acknowledging that you are part of a problem. And the second step is finding out ways that you can be a part of your community that will help everybody that lives there and not just you.
0: And so you settle on a place. um, Did you assemble your investors, did that happen before you located a place or was that sort of the requisite to getting people interested in contributing was to have like, this is going to be the place and this is that, or was it more of just a plan of like, I'm going to find a place and this is how we're going to run it?
1: Well, it was kind of complicated (laughs) because I had this business plan. You know, I knew what I wanted to do I knew that Ridgewood was going to be a tough sell because it is essentially uh, at the time it was, you know, sort of a frontier location. There really wasn't a lot out here um, as far as nightlife and, you know, and I, and I wasn't necessarily and like part of my business plan. I didn't want to be a nightlife centric club. I wanted to be a performing arts space. You know, I, I would, I didn't want a four o'clock license. I didn't want, music going until two o'clock in the morning. I didn't want DJ nights going till after hours, you know, that that wasn't the type of club that I wanted to make. So, you know, so it was a hard sell um, to people that, you know, have money because it's like, you know, you're basically convincing these people like, you're just not going to see profits from this place for a while because this is you know, it, I I essentially I could even considered being a nonprofit, um, but I didn't feel like I had enough experience and I didn't have connections with anybody that could help me facilitate that. So I just went the for-profit bar route because it just seemed easier. Um, but like I said, I did tons of research. This was it like a t- year to two-year process of me writing this business plan and rewriting it. I probably rewrote my business plan 12 times. Hmm. Um, While this was going on, you know, I talked to people about it. I, you know, told people what I wanted to do. I started working at another theater at a nonprofit theater. I worked at Dixon place in the city, which is, you know, a really successful business model. Um, that I wanted to learn the ins and outs of. And, and I was totally transparent about that, too. When I started working there, I was like, listen, I'm opening a venue and I need experience. Can I bar manage here? <laughs> you know, and and it it worked out really well for for both of us, you know, because I got my learning experience and, you know, and they got to use me for a year and it was great. Um, but like all through that process of me learning and writing and researching, I was just talking to people along the way about what I wanted to do. And I managed to win over, you know, a few people that wanted to be investors and that's kind of how it happened. I did have a few people in the beginning before I had the location that were interested in just the business plan. Um, They ended up going a different route and doing different things. So there have been like people along the way that were like involved and they weren't involved. You know, and then when I when I went to the footlight the first time, um, I was honestly using it as like a practice. You know, I went to that location. It was it was really shady from the outside and I didn't know what to expect on the inside. And I kind of just like wanted to see how I could interact with a realtor on my own. You know, it was like a confidence booster, you know, and I walked in there and when I saw the floors and the stage and the bar and like everything that was there already, I was like, where did this place come from? Like, why is it here? Like, cause I, I had looked up the history of the location and it had been a bar only for two years. Prior to that, it was a knitting factory, which is pretty prominent in Ridgewood. There's tons of, um, like sewing workshops and knitting factories and stuff. Still to this day, there's a ton of them. Um, but so I was just really I I was just really taken by Wow that's the amazing
0: cuz yeah I, I send I want to make sure you send me some pictures I'm going to post them on the the page along with this because it is it's an exquisite venue it's one of the most unique looking stages I've ever seen and I'm really surprised to find out like that's not a place that's been around for for decades and and was kind of old school no. architecture No
1: It was they built that they built it out in I think the year 2000 2001 um, and then they operated a bar there for a couple of years. Um, did you do any, any
0: research into why the previous, uh, establishment, uh, folded?
1: I did. I went to the 104 precinct and asked and in, invest to like do a little a sleuthing on my own to find out what, uh, basically I wanted to know what to expect from the community board. Um, when I went to, a, apply for my license. So, you know, and it was not easy. They, (laughs) the location had a lot of baggage um, with the community. The previous owners who are relatives of my landlord actually, um, you know, ran a pretty unsavory place and the community was not too stoked on the idea of another bar opening up in that location. I went to the community board. I did pitch to them what was what was going to be there. They did approve my license um, and have su- have since been extremely supportive of the footlight as much as the community board can. I mean, the community board can't really take sides in in any of these matters. But like, as far as like me holding up my end of the bargain of being, you know, a community centered art space. You know, I have done that. <laughs> you know, I, I turned a location that was all fights and drugs and violence into a quirky art space that has like baby play groups and <laughs> drink and draw, you know, and like really mild uh, stuff. I mean, I think the heaviest stuff we have are like when we do like industrial metal shows. And even those guys are like the nicest guys ever. They just <laughs> they just play really heavy music, you know.
0: So So how is? I definitely go ahead. Go ahead.
1: I just I definitely fulfilled like my end of uh, the bargain. You know, I I I told them what I was going to do. I've lived up to everything I said I was going to do, Um, and I think for that I've sort of won over the neighborhood as far as like their support goes.
0: So as a former musician and someone whose heart is really into creating a space for artists, how do you manage your space? differently from from other venues like what are you doing differently and that that is specifically like I this is a way that uh this is things that uh musicians and artists have to deal with when booking venues that you wanted to eliminate or improve upon
1: well so my business partner Eric Ryrie um does all the music booking and I do all the comedy variety shows burlesque shows like all like the kind of other like alternative stuff that we have there. Um, I think the main, I don't know that we necessarily set out, uh, intentionally to be very different. I think that we just are more artist friendly because we're artists. I, I i don't think it was necessarily intentional. I mean, obviously we wanted to be an artist forward and friendly establishment. Um, just because of all of our own collective experience, you know, we didn't want to provide a space that would be unwelcoming or challenging or difficult for artists to, um, be accommodated. So, you know, but I think that just because we're artists, um, we approach things differently than maybe other venues do. Obviously we try to keep costs down as much as possible. We, you know, and we also, the, the, challenge that I didn't anticipate was how hard it was going to be to get artists to charge for things. I, like, I always encourage artists to charge a cover, especially comedians and variety shows Like you have to pay the people that are performing. And by saying something is free, I feel like we're setting ourselves up to have no value, you know, because we are, especially, especially with music and comedy because so much of what we do is just given away. I mean, look at like Spotify, sure it gives you like a couple pennies per play, you know, if you're getting played a certain amount of times, but like, you know, you're giving that you're giving your music away for free. You know, you're and you know, and comedians are doing that now too. You know, they're giving away their their hour specials, their half hour specials for free. And but continue but like we don't like that's not a that's not a feasible business model to continue doing your art so like if live performance is where the arts are going back to as far as like you know gaining any sort of monetary support then you know setting an setting a precedent of like i am worth something you know you have to pay to see me play like i think that's an important distinction to be made to the artists, like to get them to understand that like, if you put something out there that's free, people are gonna think that it doesn't have value. And if you if you let all your friends on the guest list for free, you know, because you don't think that they want to pay to see you, then, you know, that's, you're telling them that you're not worth it. So I'm always like, I have this conversation, like at least a couple times a month with artists who are like, afraid people don't want to come to their show because it costs money. And I'm like, listen, like honestly, like subconsciously you are sending out a message that you are not worth anything by being concerned that someone wants to pay for it or not. You know, you should feel that you are worth the $10 or whatever the cover is, see, the 5 to $10 the cover is. Um, and then I always follow up that conversation with a, but we also never turn anyone away at Footlight, (laughs) you know, like it it is, it, there is a cover, but at Footlight, it's always a suggested donation. I'm never going to turn away like some kid who's come, you know, from the the opposite end of Queens to come see their friend's band play. I'm not going to turn him away if he has $5 in his pocket and the cover is 10, you know, we're always going to let people in. Um, we're never going to discourage people from, you know, participating and, and being there for their friend and supporting their, you know, their band. But it's about setting a precedent. It's about like putting it out there. Like I am worth something. This is worth something.
0: What are some of the more uh, unique like community event things you have aside from performances?
1: We also so like in the winter time we do a parent caregiver meetup on Fridays. Where we call it play at the footlight and we do, we have these like tumbling mats and we put them out and the babies just kind of roll around the tumbling mats and the parents like hang out and talk and commiserate and, you know, share information and talk about their kids and talk about this, you know, the stress of, of new parenthood and have a coffee or have a beer or whatever, have a glass of wine. And, you know, and that's been really awesome to watch because, there's like a whole community now of young parents that like didn't know each other before play. And now they all have this like supportive community where they can hang out and like they have their birthday parties together. It's like they have this like little community now of families that like all know each other because they started coming to this thing in the wintertime. And we do it in the winter because it's like hard to have an infant in the winter and have nowhere to go.
0: Yeah, it really does. Once once the weather turns, a lot of your options would just disappear for where you could take your kids.
1: Right, it's like you can only go to the library so many times, you know, before you're just losing it. So this is just like an opportunity for parents to come in a neutral, like no judgment zone, where like they can just hang out um, and and talk and become friends and find, you know a community that can support them, which is really challenging when you're a new parent in New York city. I mean, you don't, you and Deb know better than anyone how challenging that is. And, you know, so that's like, that's like one thing we also, the drink and draw has been really cool and it's been building. Uh, Tim Shea is the host of that. He is the bartender. Um, You know him, he is my husband. (laughs) But the cool thing about the drink and draw is that Tim has started making (laughs) these monthly zines Out of or including some of the drink and draw submissions. So, oh, that's a cool idea. It's so cool. And, you know, it was Tim's brainchild, and he's, you know, he fervently creates these zines uh, once a month over the course of like 48 hours. And it's pretty amazing. But he's, you know, he's collecting these submissions throughout the month. Um, And then he has like all the best uh, prompts or themes from the drink and draw plus our calendar, plus some of our uh, upcoming events uh, will be in there. And then, you know, our our goal right now is we wanna try to distribute the zine amongst the other uh, restaurants and bars in the neighborhood and see if they will host the zine. And if they do, we're gonna start putting their logos on the back as like sponsors, because they're like hosting the zine in their spaces, so they're technically sponsoring the zine. And that kind of just like creates more of like a network amongst the small business owners in the area.
0: So what have been some so of the more stand what have been some of the more standout memorable performances you've seen in, in the time that the footlight has been up and running?
1: And I have had some serious feels <laughs> at the footlight uh, from time to time um, there. We're an emerging artist space. So, you know, you see a lot of brand new bands having their first performances or, you know, singer songwriters that haven't really got their chops yet or their legs yet, but they, you can just see the potential. Like you can just see how amazing they're going to be. Um, we also have some incredible burlesque and dance and drag shows Um we have this one show that's almost like bi-monthly. It's called Mared, and it is a contemporary dance performance that just takes over the footlight for one night and transforms the space into whatever they need it to be. And it, it's it's beautiful, and the dance is incredible, and it's, it's cutting edge, and, you know, and that's been a really fun performance to watch.
0: That sounds really um, cool. That doesn't sound like shit at all. Is it, no. Is it Mared, the French word for shit?
1: Um, I think no married is, uh, no, I forget. There is an explanation on their website as to why they say, why they say married, but it's something that dancers say to each other instead of like break a leg.
0: Wait, how is it spelled?
1: Uh, M E R D E.
0: Yeah, that's the French word for shit
1: i can't remember why they say it to each other i they mean have, I, i'm they, sure it
0: can be yeah i mean like yeah I, I mean like break a leg doesn't make sense to say to someone that's about to walk onto a stage So, you know whatever the etymology yeah. of it is uh I, yeah.
1: <laughs> it's i think the explanation is on there is on their website okay um but i am not a dancer so i don't know but i admire dancers so much because i cannot do what they do <laughs>
0: yeah but like it's, it's, the way people you know uh having you know if you're an actor have done acting or like the the types of things you'll get from people like oh i can't imagine you can memorize all those lines and yeah uh, or the when people talk to musicians like oh it's so i can't play and sing at the same time or whatever you know having done that i'm like oh well, you just pre-, but i i'm like that with dance i'm like i can't imagine memorizing this sequence
1: i know and, it, and it's and it's the physicality it's the coordination and the, and the memorization of, of, you know, the choreography, but doing all that while just like emoting, like raw feeling and emotion through your movements is something that I just, I marvel at it. I love it. I love watching dance. So, you know, having that show and then we have this other amazing burlesque show that's also bi-monthly called Flirt and Flow. Um, and it's a flow arts burlesque show. So they, a lot of the dancers will use uh, props. They use hula hoops, or you know, like light up discs, and like all these like really amazing visual, visually stimulating um, objects, and and incorporating them into their burlesque. And it's it's an incredible show, and it 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 gets better and better every time. I swear to God. Like Alexis Saunders is the uh, the booker for that and she just blows my mind she's so good at what she does and you know so we we have a lot of performances that we just we they just range you know the gamut we have we're so open minded about what we'll do at the footlight that I feel like that has brought to us some of the most interesting uh and innovative work that you know you're not really seeing it anywhere else and that that's why footlight is so important because you know we are an emerging artist space there are not a lot of emerging artist space left in the city it's hard to make ends meet as a performing art as an emerging artist space because these are young performers or new bands you know people that don't necessarily have a following We're not selling out every weekend, you know, because some of these bands is their third show. It's like they're not.
0: It's it's sort of like an artist. It's an incubator space.
1: Yeah. You know, and, and it's that was always the vision because the main motivator behind me wanting to start this project was that a couple of places that, you know, I had played when I first started had shut down all at once. Um, like Cameo Gallery, Trash Bar, Bowery Poetry Club, um, <laughs> and you know Glasslands and Death by Audio. Basically, all of those bars closed at the same time, and were they me, all for you
0: different reasons, or was it part of uh, a, a reverberation that was hitting everybody? Like just the oh, I New York's like, hard now.
1: I mean, in this particular circumstance, it seemed like the number one reason was rising rents. um, And in Williamsburg. And, you know, because all of those bars kind of opened around the same time, and it was like a 10 year lease, and they all signed 10 year leases, which, you know, for most people, that seems like a lifetime. (laughs) But it's actually not that long for an emerging artist space or or a performing art space to be able to bring in enough profit to anticipate the rent increase that you were like, most of us start these locations in places with cheaper rent, you know, that are not necessarily gentrified, or, you know, we try to find cheap rent to start because it's going to be a challenge to make ends meet because you're never going to be bringing in huge crowds. It's, you know, we're small performing arts spaces. So you plan for the small Space and the rent, and like it's just impossible to make a ton of money off that. It's not a cash cow, you know. Yeah. And yeah. I think that we we need to. It's good business to be able to plan for the rent increase, and you know, and that's why I kind of hate that the the media focuses, the New York media specifically focuses so much on rising rents as being the culprit behind. The plague of small businesses that just
0: are closed right now or
1: are closing. Um, the, I I don't feel like the rising rents is really the main problem. Well, I it's,
0: think we're segueing pretty well into the impetus for this this whole podcast is that right. you're not facing your status quo. Yeah, even if it is just the rent or your standard environmental <laughs> factors. Um, uh, so the footlight is is in in trouble and doing a fundraiser. Do you want to walk us through where these troubles began and where they are now?
1: Yeah. So basically our story
0: <laughs>
1: is not really that unique. Um I think that it's because of the way the conversation generally goes, people focus a lot on rent as being the main culprit in small businesses having uh, having to struggle. But the main culprit is really the fact that we are so overly regulated by Mm -hmm. the city and by the state and by you know like the department of health and department of buildings and just like it's just like constant fines and fees and permits and you know the overhead run of running of business in the city is particularly high And it's to be expected and you do the research and you anticipate it and you're like, okay, like these, this is just the way it is. Like these are the things that I have to do to stay open, just to operate, you know, and you just do it. But the landlords, the ones that own the properties, they're not really being regulated. Nobody Mm -hmm. is holding them accountable. And like, you know, like for example, my landlord has had violations on his record from the department of buildings for, decades. There there are violations from the previous owner of the building before my landlord owned it from 1993. And these violations and fines just stay on the record. Nobody holds them accountable. And then the only the, the burden falls on the small business owner that wants to rent out the space. Because in order for me to operate, I have to clear those violations so that I can get a permanent certificate of occupancy for my space and maintain all of my other permits. Basically, one permit hinges on another permit hinges on another permit. So like if you don't have one of those permits, if you can't maintain one of those permits, then all of the other permits end up being null and void. So like I could lose my liquor license because my landlord won't remove the violations that were on his record, on the record for the building prior to him owning it. So in the same way that I signed into a lease agreement with him that said he had to remove those violations before I took possession so that I could secure the permits I needed to do the construction and to get the the certificate of occupancy. My entire business operation hinges on him complying with that that lease agreement. Now he has time and time again failed to remove all of those violations. At this point, the only ones left on the record are the ones that existed before he even took possession. If he didn't want to pay for those fines, if he didn't want to remove those fines, then he should have made it part of the agreement when he purchased the building that that old landlord takes care of those things. He did not do that. He did not have the foresight to do that. Therefore, he inherits the responsibility of taking care of those violations and those fines. Now, did he refuses...
0: Did you see any red flags uh, when you were, you know, investigating the space to purchase or to lease it? Or was it the sort of thing you're like, yeah, there's, there's red flags, but every venue has comes with this kind of baggage and it's a crapshoot no matter what.
1: That's kind of where I was at. It was like, this is a, like the fact that these violations are so old, this is a red flag. But I spoke to an expediter and an architect friend and was like, how easy is it for us to remove these violations? Even if he doesn't do them, maybe he'll pay me to do it. You know, maybe he'll give me rent concession to do it. So I I had talked to other other people and experts that deal with the Department of Buildings, and they led me to believe that this would be something very easy to do. So that's why, regardless of the red flags of having those violations on the record, I, in good faith, signed into this agreement thinking that we could work out an agreement if he uh, had had faced any challenge getting these violations removed. So basically, I went into this knowing already what he had to do to remove those violations. And so that we could get our permits, I already knew the steps that needed to be taken. It was his responsibility to take those steps. And he has failed to do that time and time again, he's been court ordered to do it several times. What happened recently with this ongoing litigation? Because basically, like, he agreed. That it's it's very convoluted because there's a lot of back and forth, and you know. And the bottom line is that I did make a green mistake in trusting this person to, and at first, do it at all to do to do what he said he was going to do at all. I it, should never like have trusted it. You
0: should have put gotten that in some sort of like yeah. contractual thing as opposed to like a a handshake and a wink.
1: It is contractual. It's in our lease. Oh, Um, but apparently that's not enough. (laughs) So I, when he, I should have anticipated that he would not do it. I should have planned for him not fulfilling his lease obligations. When we like, when we were signing the lease, basically I should have had a contingency plan in place. What happened is after we had signed the lease, six months go by, we're ready to take possession. He hasn't removed the violations. I tell him, I will do this for you. If you give me rent concession to pay for the expediting fees. That was the shake hand, not in a wink situation that should never have been, that should have all been in writing. And that was my green mistake. Thinking that, you know, giving this guy the benefit of the doubt, that he would that he would honor what we had decided upon. That's basically the the mistake that I made that turned into this whole situation. Because then we started working, we started going, we had our expediter start removing violations and like, you know, getting things signed over into our name and all this stuff. It, it costs so much money, just like back and forth, like constantly. And then he would like not sign papers and I have to chase him down for it. And like I started to get more and more worried, like as the time progressed, because he got more and more difficult to talk to to deal with. And you know, and then the kicker of all of this is that once we did, we started operating on a temporary certificate of occupancy. Now that's temporary, you're not supposed to have to renew them over and over and over again. You're supposed to be using that while you work on completing the CFO. Um, I opened with a temporary certificate of occupancy, and in the first week of us being open, he sued me for all the background that we had agreed upon um to go towards expediting fees and that is where this whole situation
0: started because oh, he, he was suing you i th- I thought you were in a lawsuit against him
1: initially, he sued me, and that's what makes this so complicated mm. because I he had told me that he would give me all this rent concession towards the expediting. And then he went back on that agreement and without even discussing it with me, just going straight to the court to sue me.
0: Do you think he knew now, he was going to do this when he said like, Oh yeah, sure. Well, well you, I'll give you rent concessions. And then just knowing like, and this then I'll, I'll into have the you. Danger
1: zone. This no, yeah. Into if you can't say things, plander. I understand. You can't say yeah. things. Yeah. yeah. This yeah. gets into the dangers out of speculation and slander. Sure. And I don't really go down that road because we do intend to pursue this further by going and seeking out an abatement hearing, um, you know, a rent concession abatement hearing, um, in, in Supreme court in the New York city Supreme court. Um, it's going to take a while and we probably, we have to, sh- we have to prove to the courts that we can pay rent and that we intend on paying rent for a while, um, before we can to, to make sure that we go into this next phase of our litigation strong. Um, and 100% on the right, like we need to we need to be on the right side of this. Um, it's all about optics, you know, and like it was with the with the courts and like how things look. And if we look like we're a business that doesn't pay rent, won't pay rent, doesn't want to pay rent, then we won't get heard. Um, but the the added insult to injury to all of this is just, you know, the neglect of the property has been so significant. Um, we've had damages over the years of flooding, sewage backups. Um, our roof is essentially a sieve during torrential rain. It just like rains into the footlight. And these are all things that could be easily taken care of if the building was properly maintained. Um, in Interior repairs are our responsibility, but the structural repairs, I'm not... I'm, per the lease, I'm not even allowed to do. And if I did do them um, even to just protect my, my own investment, um, I, I could that would be a violation of my lease and I could get evicted. So like if I replace the sewer pipe that backs up all the time because it's old and rusted and rotted, I will get evicted because that's a violation of my lease because it's a structural repair, not part of my, my lease. If I fix the roof, myself, that is a violation of my lease, because that is a structural repair. And it's not technically part of my property. So all of my investment is contingent on him maintaining the building, which he does not do. (laughs) And that's, that's the separate issue of this whole situation. Apart from the lawsuit is that You know, there's not just one thing going on here. There's multiple things going on. And I can't call 311 because some of this stuff, they might even, they might shut us down, you know, because of the integrity of the the building. I I don't know that for certain. And I I don't think that we're operating in unsafe conditions, but like, you never know because the city will do that. The city will take the easiest road for them. And most of the time, the burden falls on the, the tenant and not the landlord in those situations. Like us be, being told to cease to operate until the landlord complies with something would mean that we would go out of business because we wouldn't be able to operate.
0: Is, the, so, is there any um, leverage that comes with having a lot of community support as far I, as people think, like, like yeah. helping you is like, it, you know, make the case that like this place we want this place to stay and you're not just a business owner on your own saying, I want to stay in business, but there's people around you.
1: Right. I think in civil court, the court that we just were in, um, no, it doesn't really matter. Um, in fact, like the civil court was so black and white. There was a point in time where we were trying to mediate this and we were trying to settle this out and the mediator was like, if he's not doing anything, if he's not living up to his lease obligations, just leave. And I was like, just leave like I've been here and this was this was I'd been there for two years. Like I've been here for two years. Like this isn't like just a dry cleaner like and even if it were like this is like a personal invest a personal and emotional investment into a business like this isn't just like, oh, I'm just going to up and leave and go to another location. It's like, no, like that's not how this works. I've put in hundreds of thousands of dollars of other people's money into this space, you know, to make it what it is. And like countless, countless hours and emotional investment into this space to make it what it is. Like it's, it's not something that I can just give up, you know, and it, and the implication that I can was so cold. And, you know, and, and my lawyer looked at me and he could see that I was getting really upset and he just tried to like change the subject and was like, I don't think that that's fair here, (laughs) you know, because we've done everything that we were supposed to do and he hasn't done the things that he's supposed to do. And I think that abatement is the only solution here, you know, and to, you know, work out exactly what needs to be happening, happening right now to make this relationship better. Um. And that's what we've been trying to do this whole time is just like find a way that we can help him finish all of this stuff so that his whole I mean, his property values will only improve by having all this stuff taken care of. Like it's completely counterproductive for him to fight us on this in in any way. Um, But that's, again, getting into the you know, the speculative slander point. And I don't want, I don't want to go there, but sure. you right. know, when we go to, uh, the New York city Supreme court, um, those are elected judges and there is a little more accountability there. I think that a showing of support from the community would be helpful, um, in that next step. So I think what we're going to do is have a petition, um, Honestly, like I'm gonna have two petitions. I'm I, I'll, I'll allow the extending artistic community to be as involved as they want to be, which I know a lot of them want to be involved in in helping us. But I think it's even more important to show the distinction between the greater artistic community and our actual neighbors that we have developed a relationship with. Um, so yeah, I I was
0: including them in like, do you have that base of support, not just from, uh, patrons and whatever, but also your neighbors in the immediate community,
1: my actual neighbors in the community, uh, the ones that I do talk to and have a relationship with absolutely want footlight there because if we are not, he's not going to be able to rent this property out to anybody else. It's, you know, no one's going to. Make the green mistakes that I made and and take on this property with all the issues that it's had and the public issues that it's had. Like it's it's you know now been well documented about Footlight's struggle and our struggle with him in particular. So like it's not going to be easy for him to rent this space out again, if if it's even possible. So what's going to happen is he's going to revert back to his old plan, which was to just rent it out as a party place. Um, with no regulation, no liquor license, um, no insurance. And, you know, and it's just going to bring back the same element that was there before. And the neighborhood does not want that. They they enjoy the peace and quiet of the weird art kids just like hanging out in the corner smoking cigarettes for a couple hours and then leaving them alone. You know, it's like we aren't starting any violent fights. There's been next to no noise complaints from Footlight in three years. We've had, I think, two noise complaints, and both of them were for people talking outside um, and getting rambunctious outside. Not even fighting. It's, you know, so just I get think, having
0: a really animated conversation about Game of Thrones or something.
1: Exactly. I think it probably was Game of Thrones. I mean,
0: I and I can empathize with that if it had to do with season eight.
1: Oh yeah, no, it was definitely. Yeah, it was, There was a lot of fighting outside, but like arguing, arguing, fighting, not like physical fighting, right. knife fights or gunfights. You know, that was like the difference between what was there before and what's there now. And I know for, I know from a lot of people that grew up in the neighborhood, still live in the neighborhood, own their homes there, you know, they like the transition between what was there before and what is there now. And they're not going to want it to go backwards. They don't want him to have possession of this commercial space again. Um, so, you know, I, I, and I want, and I'm going to, you know, make that abundantly clear to the Supreme Court when I when I do go there. So, you know, so that it, I, I it's going to be a long process. You know, it's going to be challenging for Footlight to stay open throughout this process. We have a lot of overhead already as a large space, our, you know, our electric bill is high, um, you know, our now our, our rent is high and higher because we did settle out for all this back rent at the moment without any abatement. Um, and that's extremely unfair. So, you know, we do intend to move forward and sue for abatement, but it's just a matter of time and resources. And that's why, you know, we've asked the community to You know, we're, we're, we're seeking out sustaining monthly members through our with friends account. It's basically like becoming a sustaining member of like your public access radio, you know, you know, just like a monthly contribution, something small, you know, nothing that's going to, you know, affect you financially, but it would make a huge difference for us to get some monetary support because you're, you're basically, you're supporting the venue, you know, the bar. Because a lot of people do have that issue with, you know, supporting bars and, pe- you know, sometimes there is a connection with bars that is a negative connection. But, you know, the bar is is, is one way that we make money. It is.
0: You've also got a wicked popcorn we machine.
1: <laughs> we do have a wicked popcorn machine. It's great. His name is Chad. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the bar is is the way that we make money you know but the one thing that I've I've really enjoyed about the pub environment of our bar is that it has been a really great place for people to come and talk and like we don't really have we have a projector but mostly it's just playing Buffy or Dinosaurs so like nobody's really paying attention to it you know people are actually engaging and talking and meeting each other and you know, learning about the neighborhood from the neighborhood locals. And I can't tell you you how
0: much I, I love that when I find a bar without TVs.
1: Yeah, I know. It's 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 interesting to watch, you know, the younger generation interacting with the older generation. And it's beautiful. It's great. It's how we learn. It's how, you know, having conversations. And not always easy conversations, you know, but having conversations and talking over a pint or talking over, you know, a well whiskey at happy hour, it's like, that's how we connect. And that's how, you know, I mean, honestly, that's how real change happens by having conversations uh, like what we're having right now about gentrification, about, you know, the, the real enemy, you know, and like, honestly, the real enemy is not being involved in your community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and not participating and not meeting your neighbors and not, you know, finding that there's a greater community there that you can be a part of, you know, isolating ourselves with our phones and our TVs and our Netflix is the way that civilization is going the way it is. Like if we continue to isolate, that's why bars and performance spaces and culture and art is so important because it connects everybody and it gives us something to talk about and it gives us something to relate. And, you know, and you can be a sanitation worker, you know, who grew up in Queens and is in his 40s. And you can talk to, you know, a 20 something millennial who's doing a performing art, like a weird performance art thing in the back. And you can connect on some level and find each other interesting and just hang out and learn and, and experience something new, you know, and that's, and that's what's been really amazing to watch at Footlight is like how this has happened. Does it make us a lot of money? No, <laughs> not really. But I think that outside of the monetary value, the you know the value that we provide is priceless.
0: So in addition to um, the, I'm just uh, interested in if as you've gone into this this rabbit hole of finding out just how bad commercial landlords uh, can be is there any um, legislation or proposed regulations that you've become aware of that would uh, start holding these landlords to better account?
1: I mean, again, I feel like the conversation weighs too heavy on rising rent and rent being too expensive. Um, While that is obviously an issue, and it is an important issue to discuss. I mean, because there is a commercial uh, rent control legislation floating about in the city council right now. I, I know. I don't know exactly where it's at. I know that it was being talked about. Um, honestly, I feel like having the landlords be as regulated as their small business tenants is the only way that we're going to see change and i know people don't like the word regulation and it's not it's not necessarily that they they because they already are it's just nobody's actually collecting those fines nobody is allow like disallowing them to buy more property it's a problem you know? of it's enforcement
0: like, not that there aren't rules on the books
1: exactly and it's you know how does a landlord that has multiple violations on every property that he owns how is that person able to buy another property in new york why is that not being why why is that being missed you know i feel like that is how the like we need to reward the landlords that don't uh further gentrification that don't jack up their rents every chance that they get like there needs to be a more of like a reward basis for you know because i feel like the good landlords are so few and far between you know and and their property their their taxes are high their water bills are high whatever but they're still just like they're trucking along you know and they're they're not being horrible people to their <laughs> their tenants and then you have this whole arsenal of landlords that have violations and Thousands of dollars in, in fines that are not collected over decades, you know, and, and they're still buying tons of property. And why are they getting they just shouldn't be allowed to do that. That that's the kind of that's the kind of regulation and the enforcement that we need to see to have to, that will directly affect people's uh, quality of life in the city. And, and I feel like the focus is always on rent. And we need to stop focusing on rent and start focusing on the overall problems that affect everybody. Because we're never going to be able to control gentrification or rising rent, it's too far gone, you know, but if we can prevent the landlords that abuse those things from purchasing more property, You know, but I mean, I don't know how that's going to happen. I'm not a politician, you know, and I I don't know how to go about having this conversation on a a grander scale. Oh, that's okay. I I
0: just was wondering if you had come across anything like that as you're navigating these waters to find out Mm -hmm. if others are, you know, frustrated with this and and there's a larger movement to, to stop, you know, this sort of behavior or like you said incentivize good behavior um, because right. i'm sure you're str- you're not alone in your struggle but you you do have one of the most unique spaces i'd ever been in in new york i'll always be thankful for you letting me put on my very last carnival in new york there it was such a, nice. a, a beautiful thing to do and a beautiful sp- space to do it in
1: that was also that was the first thing we ever did at footlight
0: i know so we, yeah
1: we didn't even have our liquor license yet
0: yeah, we had it to be was, a little that like
1: that was an unofficial like private party. Yeah. <laughs> I barely I no, I actually no, I think I had the liquor license, but I didn't have liquor yet. I buy it. I don't think I even had the money. But yeah, that was the first event we ever had at Footlight was your carnival. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and I'll, that's like I said. That'll always put uh, the footlight have a special place in my heart. On top of just I love I love you and Tim. You're two two of my favorite people in New York, and I miss you all the time. Um,
1: oh, I miss you guys too.
0: Well, I certainly want to get up there to visit sometime soon, and uh, I want to let everyone in my Cleveland audience know, especially musicians, that you know yours is a, a pretty good place to go. Do you get a lot of out of towners coming to to open for other acts?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. We we have a lot of touring acts especially on the weekends. Um and you know, we do the best we can to help them navigate the New York music scene and find the right people to play with. You know, we generally like it when bands bring us a um, a potential lineup. You know, like if they if you want to book a show at But Light, you know, the best thing you can do is like do your research and like come to us with a lineup of, you know, local support. That you think would be good for you and if you need help getting a a couple of bands on a bill you know we can usually reach out to some of our contacts as well um but it does it is we do book a lot of stuff here so honestly coming to us with an idea of a bill is the best way to get booked at footlight because it's just easier for us to um, navigate that um rather than put together a bill on our own it's just a lot more Leg work, and when you're booking five to six shows a week, it gets to be a lot. So, you know, but yeah, we we do have a lot of touring acts that come through Footlight, especially you know because we're an emerging art space. So if you're a touring act and you've played New York only once or twice, and you don't have a huge following here. You know, you're probably going to end up at Footlight because <laughs> we're the crazy people that are just like, come on in, like <laughs> we don't care if you bring ten people, just like home hang, you know? Yeah. We should probably care a little bit more. My investors are listening to this and shaking their fist. But. <laughs>
0: well, I uh, I'm, once you get through all these problems, um, then you can get a little more shrewd.
1: Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, so,
0: yeah, I want to encourage everyone. There will be a link on the footnotes for this episode to uh, support the footlight on withfriends.co. Uh, I think it's with friends.co slash the underscore footlight. And there's a lot of different options. I kicked in uh I kicked in like a one time twenty just because uh we're tight, but I wanted to throw something your way. Um I really appreciate it. And I wanna uh, thank you so much, Laura, and keep putting up the good fight and uh I will be following along with this and checking in with you. Hopefully uh to find out that everything's been magically resolved and, and the and everyone's rallied together and donated all of their money and the footlight will be existing in perpetuity.
1: Ah, oh, I hope so. I hope that happens. Magic is real, it could happen.
0: Yes. Just have a Marianne mindset. Good vibes.
1: <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Lots of orbs. <laughs> I, I do want to apologize to Marianne. I appreciate a lot of things she says in the debate, but she can't win. Uh, just a, That's the one political tangent in this episode. I think that's a record for me. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, like any struggling podcast, I can always use a little iTunes love with a five-star rating or swing by the Facebook page, throw a like my way, maybe a couple of comments. And if you really, really like the show, you can kick a couple of bucks my way at patreon.com slash BZDug, that's B-Z-D-U-G. Okay, that's it. End of podcast. Enjoy whatever it is you're about to do next. Thanks. Bye.